we learn that the temple of God is the dwelling place of the Lord in Ezekiel's temple. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Embry. I'm Janice. And this is, of course, Bible Discovery TV. We learn much from Ezekiel as he presents in these last eight chapters the amazing stories and the imagery that he sees in his particular teaching. Now, we'll talk about it in five minutes time. Corey and Ryan is here. Corey, what's going on? Well, I'm continuing to track some of these temple articles and uh, pieces of furniture as far as we can in the historical record. Today, uh, the lampstand is what we're going to be focusing on. Ryan? Okay, so the Bible, especially in its prophetic literature, tells of coming cosmic signs in the heavens, and these signs were one of the God-ordained purposes of the celestial bodies, among other things. More on that coming up. Yes, I mean, a lot of people are talking about climate change, but this is really important. It's in the Bible. Okay, Janice? I want to talk about a dwelling place. All right, get your Bible guide out. Let's study. Ezekiel 43, 1 through 9. Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings, by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold, and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through nine. Ezekiel chapter 43, chapter 44, and chapter 45. We are in the last eight chapters of this absolutely stunning book, and it is amazing. You know, when we worship God, are we truly worshiping the Lord, or are we really worshiping ourselves in his name? This is an interesting question that each of us should seriously answer. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 2 Peter 1, 10 to 11, read it. When Jesus instructed his disciples how to pray, he said, pray this way, quote, our Father 
who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not leave us into into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. I quoted Matthew 6, 9 to 13 for a reason. The Lord Jesus tells us to pay attention to how we address God, the Father, because he is holy, holy. In chapter 43, Ezekiel is not only focused on what the Lord is showing him, but he's also focused on the majesty, the radiant glory, and the holiness of God. So the question is, what is the difference or what delineates holy from common? And and how do you really know if you are holy? That's a really good question, isn't it? As we stay focused on this today, we need to take our Bible guide and turn to the passage. But if you don't have a Bible guide, you can write to us or call us and we'll send you one. Or you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go there, you can click on the Bible guide. It'll take you to the place where you can download it exactly how we have it. The donations are there. Whatever the donation, God speaks to your heart. Doesn't matter. Nothing's too small. Nothing's too large. Just whatever God speaks to your heart. We trust the work of the Holy Spirit in you. That's very important. All right. Father, we pray today as we look at true worship. Help us to understand, you know, worship is defined in so many ways, Lord. How we sing, how we act, smoke machines, light machines, this, that, the other. Noise, loud, soft. But help us to know the truth. That worship is knowing the holiness of God. Teach us your ways, not ours. Show us your paths. Keep us focused on your path. Take us off of our paths. Keep us focused on the holiness of God. In Jesus' wonderful name, and we said together, amen. Now, when we look at the chapter 43, verse 1 here, it gets interesting. Ezekiel 43 says, Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the glory of God the God of Israel, came from the way of the east, where the sun rises and all that. Interesting. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, And I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate, which faces towards the east. The glory of the Lord came from the rising sun in the east, beloved. The earth spins that way. That's the way we're set up. You see, when we come to the Lord, we come to his holiness, God's holiness. And that's important because a lot of people say they come to the Lord, but they really didn't. 
Because understanding that God is holy and realizing that he makes us holy when we give our lives to him, that is unique. That's the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of spirits in the world. From the ancient past, the Babylonian spirits are all here. But there's only one Holy Spirit, and that is Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God. Interesting. Well, let's read on because this is something else. Ezekiel chapter 43, one verse, verse 5. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is stunning. The glory of the Lord lifted Ezekiel into the presence of God. Now, hear me carefully. God transforms us when we receive salvation. We are a new creation through Christ Jesus. What do I mean by salvation? I mean, when we come to know the Lord, when we recognize our failure, my failure, I'm a failure. I recognize that. And then I come to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I'm a failure. God looks down at me and gives me his hand and he says, you are now a winner because of my Holy Spirit and me. That's a totally different ballgame. That's not self-esteem at all. That's Christ-esteem. That's a whole lot more powerful, I'm telling you right now. So, beloved, when we come to Christ, he changes everything about us. He makes us understand that God has called each of us to who he is. And Ezekiel sees this, and he's, he, he realizes this is, this is amazing. I'll tell you, it's something else. Now we go on to Ezekiel 43, verse 6. Here's what it says. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever, forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or with their carcasses of the kings of their high places, when they set the threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost, with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abomination which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and their carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst. Look at this, forever. The point is this, the leaders and the kings must put away their evil ambitions and turn to God. As Christians, our greatest desire is to complete what God has called us to do. And the one beautiful thing that always takes, it's a beautiful thing, humility, because we understand the truth of who he is, who we are, and what that means. And we understand the truth. If we make anything out of our lives, it is because of the Holy Spirit, because of God. And that's the truth. Very simple. Father, help us today to know what that means and put it in our life now in Jesus' name.
Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. On yesterday's program, we took a look at several of the temple articles or pieces of furniture that, you know, we, we tried to trace them through history until their trail went cold. Today, we are going to do the same thing, but this time with the lampstand. Really, I should say lampstands, shouldn't I? Because we know that when Solomon built his temple, he had 10 of them, not just the one that originally uh, stood and lit the tent tabernacle. So let's take a look at the lampstand. The biblical menorah or multi-branched lampstand had its origins with Moses who constructed it in the wilderness. Later, King Solomon made 10 lampstands for his temple in Jerusalem, which also may have housed Moses' original menorah. These lampstands are believed to have survived to the time period of the Babylonian destruction of the temple or until the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who raided the temple and set up an altar to Zeus in it. This infamous act inspired the Maccabean revolt, which ultimately restored the use of the temple and saved the objects. Regardless, the temple was finally destroyed by Rome in AD 70, an act remembered by the Ark of Titus and the records of an eyewitness, the Roman historian Josephus. He records that on top of spoils of war, a Jewish priest bought his life by trading temple treasures to the Romans, including at least one menorah from the temple. The treasures were then displayed in the Roman Temple of Peace, and there are second century eyewitness claims of seeing the veil of the Ark of the Covenant, the high priest's breastplate, and the menorah in Rome. By the Byzantine period, there were rumors that the temple treasures were somewhere hidden in Rome. And by the medieval period, legends grew to specify that Christians had hidden them. Perhaps this is the beginning of a popular belief today that as inheritors of Rome, the Vatican is hiding at least the menorah. History, however, is not entirely silent on this. Despite the Temple of Peace being destroyed by fire in AD 192, a Byzantine historian writes of two potential places that the menorah could have ended up. It could have returned with the victorious Visigoths after their sacking of Rome, or it could have gone with the Vandals of Carthage, who also sacked Rome. When Emperor Justinian's general then defeated Carthage, he is said to have brought back with him the temple treasures of the Jews. Did the menorah end up in Justinian's capital, Constantinople? Another record claims Justinian believed the treasures were cursed, so he sent them back to Jerusalem. Interestingly, he did build the massive Nia church in Jerusalem. Could this have been a place to house the long-lost treasures of the Second Temple? So there we go, one more article tracked as far as I can track it. Uh, on tomorrow's program, we're gonna be looking more generally at Ezekiel as this prophetic book comes to an end. Lots of interesting topics, to say the least, popping up in Ezekiel. It's, a, it's exciting to study him because of these last eight chapters. Yeah. And I say that uh, in a very, very uh, constructive way. It's very important that we hear this, okay. Ryan, you're up. Okay, so as I mentioned off the top of the program, the Bible, and especially its prophetic books, tells of great cosmic signs in the heavens that will accompany the Lord's return. 
And as Genesis chapter 1, verse 14 explains, signs are one of the roles that God gave the celestial bodies. But another role that they were given was to mark seasons. And this brings up a really important question. What exactly are signs and seasons? Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. In this day four account, God ordains the sun, moon, and stars for several purposes. First, to divide the day from the night. Second, to be for signs and seasons, and for days and years. Third, to be lights in the expanse of the heavens and to give light on the earth. And fourth, to rule over the day and over the night. While many of these purposes are related and self-explanatory, what are we to make of their secondary stated purpose to be for signs and seasons? While there are a number of meanings for signs, there are really only two distinct meanings for seasons. One meaning refers to the manner in which weather changes throughout the year. Most of the temperate world would see these play out through the four seasons of winter, spring, summer, and autumn. However, more important is the ability to determine season change for agriculture. Indeed, it is critical that a good calendar reveals when the proper time to plant is, and a good calendar relies upon carefully noting the changing position of the sun with respect to the stars. In this sense, stars indicate the seasons. Though this is the common definition of seasons today, this has not always been the meaning. Originally, it referred to a period of time, or to a time appointed for some purpose. In fact, says one Bible commentator, the Hebrew word translated season in Genesis 1.14 literally means appointed time, and elsewhere specifically refers to Jewish festivals and feasts, and more properly could be translated here as festival. At the time Genesis was written, the Hebrews most likely would have associated the seasons of Genesis 1 with the festivals. Besides seasons, the sun, moon, and stars were also to be for signs. What do signs refer to? Well, many exclusively relate these to the coming prophetic signs in the heavens, which will reveal God's wrath. There are at least three other kinds of signs given through the heavenly bodies. For example, in Matthew 16, 1-4, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for being able to discern the weather, but not the signs of the times. Thus, based on this passage, another type of sign is weather forecasting. Passages such as Psalm 8, Psalm 19, and Romans 1, 18-20 also reveal that the heavenly objects are signs of God's existence, and the star which led the wise men from the east to the baby Jesus was also clearly a sign from heaven. So as you can see, there are many different answers to what signs and seasons means regarding the sun, moon, and stars. And we actually see in Ezekiel 45, 17, an example of how they marked the times of various Jewish festivals. And it says there, Then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. Now, with that being said, tomorrow we're going to look at this a little bit more and see exactly how the mechanics of these celestial timekeepers are designed. And this is important because this is also mentioned in Genesis. Um, God said he made the stars in the sky for times and seasons. And uh, it's important to remember that because when we get into the Bible, a lot of people are taking it and applying it to their current culture. 
But the Bible, we need to understand that God is saying something, that his word is the most important. Mm -hmm. So that's that's very interesting, Ryan. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for that. All right, Janice. Yes, I called this a dwelling place. This chapter focuses on, I'm talking about Ezekiel 43, the temple, the Lord's dwelling place. And uh, on yesterday's program, I talked about us being a new creation through the Lord Jesus Christ when we come to the saving knowledge and accept Jesus as our Lord and, and repent and ask him to forgive us of our sins, we become this new creation. And um, the temple really is inside of us because his sp spirit now dwells within us. 2 Corinthians 6, 6 to 18 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. These are very sobering words. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if we say that we are a Christian, if we say we follow Christ, then that's what we need to do. We need to be malleable. We need to be moldable. We need to be soft in the hands of God. We need to be willing to change with his help. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him. This becomes the Lord's dwelling place. We become the Lord's dwelling place. Now, I don't know about you, but I, a lot of times I save everything. I think I have every birthday card, every Mother's Day card that you kids have given to me. I've got little scraps of paper that people have written to me and it's tucked into my Bible. And you know, while all that's great, the things tend to build up. You know, you can clean your room and then you start putting stuff there. You know, the mail, you get the mail and pretty soon it gets stacked. Up. You don't even know what's in there. And that's the way we are on the inside. We become stacked up with all kinds of little things, things that we've picked up as kids, things that we have learned as adolescents, things that habits that we've developed that, that just get all cluttered and we don't even know that it's in there. And when we give ourselves over to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to read his word and we begin to spend time with him. He begins to help us to clean those things up. We begin to see things in ourselves that shouldn't be there. And a lot of times, some of the things are very easy to toss away. You know, if I have an old receipt or an old, oh, I don't need that anymore. It's easy for me to throw away when I'm going through stuff. But then I might get to something that has a sentimental value. I've had for a long time. Do I need it? And, and sometimes there's an emotional struggle. And those are some of the things that we go through as a believer in Christ. Not everything that the Word of God says is easy and peaceful for us to do. Sometimes it's a bit of a struggle. It's a bit of a fight in, in wanting to hold on. But God says, no, when you come to me, you need to come to me fully. And that's something that we can't do on our own. And how wonderful it is that our Heavenly Father is such a good Father that He is patient and gracious. But we can't live stuck in one spot. We need to be moving forward. We need to be allowing God to come in to our heart, to come in to our mind, to come into our thoughts 
and begin to cleanse us, begin to make us that wonderful dwelling place where the Lord can dwell and that we can be a reflection of him to others, uh, to those around us. And I think that's that's really something that we need to, to, to think on today. I don't know if mm-hmm. any of you have anything that you want to add to that at all. Well, I think, I think just the encouragement that it's worth it, mm. right? That it's worth stopping these things that we think are going to fulfill us. Mm -hmm. We think we need them to have a fulfilling life. It's the way we've always done it, or it somehow answers a deep cry of our heart. So we think, but we all know that nothing actually does fulfill. There's a problem. There's something wrong. We look around at the rates of depression and anxiety, right? We all know this. We all experience these emotions and 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 just this utter inadequacy of us. And the only thing that's going to fix that or correct that is going to be God dwelling with us. That's the entire point of the Bible. Adam and Eve too thought that that life would be better if they were the boss of themselves, if they were God. And they found out very quickly that it just ruined everything. And they I'm imagining they spent the rest of their lives trying to get back to dwelling with God. That's the whole point of the scripture. Now we have the promise of the fulfillment that we're gonna get back to an Eden-like state where God dwells with us truly. God can dwell with you if you ask him to. Recognizing God's holiness is the beginning of good worship. And we worship you, Lord. Lord, help us all to learn what it means to worship you, to recognize your holiness. And as we do that, Lord, we we come to you in, in your presence and we ask you to hear our hearts as we cry to you, Lord, you are holy. Help us to also be the people who will follow you and become holy.